This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. All right, another edition of the College Football Fix here. Paul Meyerberg and Dan Walken with you. We have a lot to talk about with the coaches poll, which we'll get to in a second. But as we move on from week two and into week three, we've got to start with the big story in college football, which is Nebraska firing Scott Frost after a loss to Georgia Southern, which is amazing symmetry because you had Clay Helton last year become the first coach fired with USC, and he was on the opposing sideline in Memorial Stadium where Scott Frost walked off that field for the final time as Nebraska's coach and is now the first coach fired this season after a loss to Clay Hilton. Just phenomenal symmetry. It had been coming. It had been obvious. I think when you look at Nebraska making this decision now, even though it's costing them about $7.5 million more than if they had waited three weeks till the buyout reduces on October 1st, I think it's just, A, kind of a mercy killing for all involved. Just end it now. Pull the plug. Don't worry about all the speculation that would be surrounding this for the next three weeks. And B, you know, I don't really, I don't really buy that that it's you know getting a head start on the coaching search. I don't think that matters. But I do think sending the signal to your fan base that this is not acceptable. You want to keep that sellout streak going. All those things that Nebraska loves and cares about. It'll keep people engaged because they. I think they were just done with Scott Frost. It had been a disaster from beginning to end, and there was just no way it was going to get better. Yeah, the the eventual highlight of his entire tenure was his first game. And that game was like rained out and canceled, so it really wasn't even that good. It was a rain out was the highlight of his tenure. So, yeah. um, Yeah, one thing that you're on point about, I believe, is that, like, they're doing this now, I think, to save the season because they truly think Trev Alberts does that they can do something. They're not going to make the playoff, but maybe they can win the West. Maybe, um, maybe maybe, because the West is is a is a poop sandwich. But I feel like, um, in terms of like getting out in front of the market, are you hiring Dan Mullen, Bronco Mendenhall? Like it doesn't it doesn't do anything for your coaching search. You're still tethered to the end of the regular season if you want a qualified candidate. So, I think it's about saving the season and just saying enough is enough. Like this is it. Let's just let's just quit. And, and and never talk again, which is probably what's going to happen between Scott Frost and Nebraska. Yeah. Why didn't it work? I mean, I think that we're all understanding that this had to happen. Frankly, it should have happened after last season. It just wasn't going to get fixed at that point. But why did it go so wrong? And this is a guy that when he coached UCF for, for a couple of years, got it turned around quickly. They were awesome. They – scored on everybody. They beat really good teams. He goes to Nebraska. It seems like a slam dunk. And just from the very beginning, it never was right. And they couldn't fix it. And I don't know, like you're closer to that than I am. You understand Nebraska more than I do. What did he do wrong that just didn't give him a chance to to succeed there? Yeah, I, I would say a couple things just off the bat. I think he hired extremely poorly. Um, from the start, I think that was a huge mistake for a young coach to think that the guys who caught lightning in a bottle one year could win in the Big Ten. Um, I don't know if there was uh, a commitment to reinvention or or the kind of uh, insight, self insight that it takes to recognize what you do well as a coach and what you don't. And I think overall, just a lack of humility. Um, and I think those are three assets for any leadership position in anything in any realm in this world if you don't have those three things you're going to fail he did himself no favors from the start he never took advice he never thought he needed help um and he needed a lot of help um and i think uh, a lot of uh, it's not like this it's not like a everyone's rejoicing i think a lot of people wanted to make it work but i do worry that uh he dug himself a big hole when he said things like hey i want the big 10 to adapt to us so I think there are 13 head coaches in the Big Ten who are texting each other saying, hey, uh, what happened in that? Did, did we have to adapt or, or what? Can you guys let us know? So 
Um, no one's shedding any tears, believe me, in the profession inside the Big Ten or elsewhere about Scott Frost, except maybe people who hoped that it would work, but it wasn't going to work. Yeah, Frost never really had the best people skills ever. I mean, I think even when he was an assistant coach at Oregon and I'd been around him a little bit then, you could kind of see there was just this this strange edge to him that was not going to serve him well when he was in front of the public constantly as you are as a head coach. I, I think the point about the staff is crucial. He basically brought everybody from UCF with him, including a bunch of guys who had never really worked at the Power Five level, had certainly never recruited in the areas of the country that you need to recruit well if you're Nebraska, historically get a lot of guys from Texas, California. You don't have the recruits in your backyard. It's a much different thing to try to get guys from Florida to go to Nebraska. I think that's much harder. And I think they screwed up there. Bill Moose, the athletic director at Nebraska when Frost was hired, was a weak athletic director, did not really give him a lot of guidance, uh, did not uh, did not have the, I don't want to say the the guts, but just wasn't inclined to rein him in or tell him no or, or say, hey, listen, you know, we got to, you got to do X, Y, Z in this job. I think a stronger athletic director would have helped maybe put him on the right path, but it, it was just awful, you know, and, and this game against the, the, against Georgia Southern was a prime example. I mean, they gave up 640 yards or whatever to, to Georgia Southern. And that those are the kind of things that show a, a, a softness, I think that, always bothered me about the way Nebraska played under Frost. They just never seemed very tough. Yeah, and they play in a tough division. It's not a flashy division, obviously, but they play in a tough division. And those teams salivated at the idea of playing Nebraska because they were so poorly led. So there's a – this is going to be a great thing for that program in the long run because more so, if not as much – I mean, as much, if not more so, than any school in the country, Nebraska needs to, like – really realize that it's time to take things in a new direction and you need to stop clinging to the past and trying to hire inside the family or any of the stupid garbage. That kind of stuff got Alabama in trouble for a long time. It got a lot of programs in trouble. So this is this time where they say, okay, so we need to bring in new ideas and we need to support new ideas and move in a new direction. And I think they'll do that because my opinion, I understand he's a neophyte when it comes to this level. I've been really impressed with Trevor Alberts. I think he's been uh, open and, and direct about what he wants in the position. I, I think just reading the tea leaves that when he went to Frost last year and was like, hey, I want to I want to I want a million dollars back and I want a new buyout. He expected every ounce of him to first Frost to say, hell no. And say, well, I tried my best, Scott. Good luck. Don't let the door hit you. Um, so I really think he's been proactive about this whole thing. I think there might be something to the idea that they have someone lined up. Again, that doesn't mean it's going to happen before December, but I, I think that there's a chance that he went through this process to a degree this past winter and knows what he wants and knows who he can get. So I think this is going to be a little bit more of a smooth hiring cycle than what we've seen from this program in the last, what, 25 years, 20, 25 years? Well, the one thing that will help Nebraska, I imagine, is the fact that they won't have a ton of competition on the marketplace. Now, you'd never know exactly how it's all going to play out in the coaching carousel or which jobs are going to come open. There's certainly surprises that happen every year. But at least from what we can tell right now, the there are not going to be a ton of big-time jobs open this cycle. You know, Maybe Auburn comes open, something like that. But there's just been so much turnover in a lot of these big jobs that you're not going to get a ton of firings. So what do you think they do? I mean, there's been some focus early on Matt Campbell at Iowa State. You know, I think Chris Kleiman at Kansas State has done a good job. Certainly, uh, you mentioned Dan Mullen, who's who's out of a job. You know, you've got Bill O'Brien, who is probably in line to get one of these head coaching jobs at some point. Uh, I've mentioned Matt Rule. Things don't work out in Carolina. Could he come back to college? There's been a lot of discussion about that within the industry. Seems pretty wide open. They seem like they're going to have good options. Yeah, you and I have both talked about Rule as being the fit here for about a year. I mean, ever since we knew that Frost was dead in the water, we both said, hey, this is, I mean, you can't do any better than that. So um, 
He's the first guy on the list, I believe, if you want to make this hire. I think if you don't get him to say no first, you've done yourself and your program a huge disservice. Um, the guys that you mentioned, um, I think it's it's that's a really telling list because they're all Midwest-focused, and they've all – and you throw Lance Leipold in there. I think he's like option C, but if, if you throw those guys in there, they're all Midwest-centered guys who want to remain in the Midwest and have – if not an identity about who they are and what kind of person they recruit, they have like a set scheme. They know what they want to do. They're not flashy. They're not home runs, but they're solid doubles. Each one of them, Campbell might be even more than that. So that's where I think the, the search is going to end up. A guy within the Midwest bubble who understands the region, uh, who can paint a picture of this is who we are now. This is who we want to be. And I can do it in this amount of time. So look for a guy who works. Let's just make that clear. If they want, if they want someone who's a little bit of the inverse of Scott Frost, someone who is humble and someone who works, works, works. So Matt Campbell to me makes a whole lot of sense. We'll see if that actually works out though. Yeah, long way to go, and it's a tough position to put a lot of teams in and coaches when you're asking about these things in literally week three. It's not <laughs> fair to anybody, and it's it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, but this is the business that we're in right now. So. Let's uh, start recapping things from top down. Number one this week in the USA Today coaches poll is Alabama. I got to say, I'm a little surprised they held on to the top spot. They beat Texas 20 to 19. It was not a great Alabama performance. They did survive and win. Uh, But we need to talk about this game because Alabama ends up hanging on to number one. 39 first place votes to 25 for Georgia. So the gap is, is, is pretty narrow. And then Texas in this game actually moves up from 22 to 20 uh, based on how well they played. And Alabama had a ton of penalties. It looked to me various points like they were destined to lose this game. And then they get the ball back with a minute and a half to go. Uh, Bryce Young drives them down the field. They get a, 33-yard field goal with 10 seconds left, and and they are able to scratch out the win. We said last week, Alabama-Georgia versus the field. We both took out, would take Alabama-Georgia. But this is a bit of a concerning performance for Alabama because their offensive line struggled, did not get a lot of good protection for, for Bryce Young. They maybe lack some playmakers at wide receiver that we are used to seeing them. And then they just committed a ton of penalties on defense. What do you think is going on with the Tide? I go back to last season. If you take Georgia out of the equation, it's like four straight games against Power 5 by two points, three points, a point, six points. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with Alabama in a broader sense. But, yeah, I mean, I think there are issues with explosiveness. There's issues up front. You know what I mean? And Bryce Young is this kind of guy who can do it all by himself, but that's not truly sustainable. We saw last year, eventually you're going to run up against someone who can do it as well, if not better than you. So I'm concerned about Alabama just in the sense of, um, I don't want to get caught up in one game, but I don't think if you, if you look at it as a trend, this is not a trend that points towards 15-0 and in a national championship. So maybe we take a step back about this team being a juggernaut. Um, in terms of being number one, they're like number two with like a bullet in the AP poll. I mean, they're like way like Georgia's got 53 first place to Alabama's nine in the AP. So I don't I think if you look at it with your two eyes, you recognize Georgia's played better football. But also coaches are not going to like penalize you for winning at Texas with 105,000 people in the stands. So that's why they're number one in the coaches poll still. Yeah, and I think if I were voting, I would probably have Georgia above Alabama because I do value what my eyes have seen. And based on that, Georgia looks like a much stronger team right now. And that may change by the end of the year. I think certainly with Alabama, you have to put some stock and faith in Nick Saban teams getting better as the year goes on. But it may not be linear, and they may, in fact, stub their toe somewhere along the line here. So we're just going to have to monitor that. Uh, They do look like they have some issues. And uh, toward the end of last year, it, it looked like the Alabama team that was squeaking by often. And and that's concerning. All right. So Georgia, number two, nothing to talk about here. They beat Samford 33 to nothing. 
Uh, Ohio State, um, you know, again, pretty easy win. Uh, who did they play? Arkansas State. Clemson, you know, we mentioned in week one, did not look very good. Uh, but, you know, they play Furman in week two, 35 to 12. I don't know if I want to totally glean too much from that, but the fact that Clemson only had 376 yards of offense against Furman, you know, once again, that, that seems like maybe a little bit of a, of a red flag here because, you know, again, just not a lot of explosiveness on offense. Didn't really run the ball very well. Uh, It gets a little bit tougher. They play Louisiana tech this week and then, they really get into the meat of that schedule with Wake Forest and, and NC State. Uh, number five, Michigan. So we had mentioned before about Jim Harbaugh taking this uh, tactic with his quarterbacks where you know he was basically going to treat the first two games as, as exhibitions. And the way he set it up you know, was Cade McNamara was going to play the first game, J.J. McCarthy was going to play the second game, they beat Hawaii 56-10. J.J. McCarthy looks very, very good. 11 for 12 passing, three touchdowns, no interceptions. And now it looks like Michigan is going to go with J.J. McCarthy as the starter when they play UConn this Saturday. Was this just Harbaugh kind of setting it up to give people visual evidence of why he was going to go with the kid? It feels that way. What I want to know is why isn't like, what is he waiting for? I mean, he said McCarthy's a starter for UConn. Are we going to do this every week? And like every single week, we got to wait till Sunday to find out who Michigan starter is going to be the next week. Uh, God, um, McCarthy is clearly better than Cade McNamara. No disrespect, McNamara is pretty dang good, but McCarthy takes this offense to a different level. So I don't know what they're waiting for. Name him the starter and roll with it. They've got a little bit of time here before Penn State mid-October where they could work out the kinks and, and get things all together with him as a starter. I would just give him the job because he's been pretty pretty dang good so far. Number six is Oklahoma. No issue last week with Kent State. Oklahoma State rising from number 10 to number 7. They got a 34-17 win over Arizona State. I will be honest, I did not watch that game. Uh, USC is up four spots to, to number eight. They beat Stanford 41-28. to 28. Uh, Caleb Williams, 341 passing yards, four touchdowns. It's quite obvious that USC offensively is, is going to be awesome. 505 yards of offense in that game. But, you know, on the, on the flip side, they gave up 441 to Stanford. Stanford had 33 first downs in the game. Stanford had four turnovers. Uh, and so that's why they only had 28 points. I mean, is this basically just like his Oklahoma teams reduxed in in Los Angeles? Because so far that's what it looks like. Um, it is uh, definitely Oklahoma West right now. I'm looking at this team, and they're fo- so much fun to watch on offense, and they could still lose to Fresno and Oregon State these next two weeks, like no doubt about it, because I don't know what they're I – don't, I really don't know if they're – good enough to get through really high-quality opponents, uh, maintain this offense, and get the stops they need on defense. Like you said, Stanford, we're not used to Stanford actually being good on offense. It was strange on Saturday night to see them have any sort of success. So I, I think this is a really fun team to watch. Caleb Williams has been fantastic. Um, but I don't think – like, I don't think this is the eighth-best team in the country. I know you've been higher on them the most, but I, I haven't seen, like, number eight. I didn't see number eight on Saturday night. Yeah, I, I think it's a work in progress. But I do think that – the Pac-12 is going to be there for the taking. And I think they're, they're, they have the capability to, to do that. Um, but it, they're going to be interesting to watch, you know, and I think as, as we get further into the season, uh, they are going to uh, minimum win, you know, nine, 10 games. Like that's what kind of the baseline right now. And it's just going to come down to how they perform in a couple key games against your Utahs and, you know, maybe one or two others. Um, so I think it's good signs early because they are producing and they are playing well on offense. But, yeah, it's, you know, there's definitely some things to question there. All right, number nine, Michigan State. Uh, they're 2-0, and no problem. Kentucky, moving up from number 20 to number 10. They go down to Gainesville and get just an awesome, awesome win over the, the Gators, 26-16. 
a tough physical game. I thought it was really fun to watch because both teams were making plays on both sides of the ball. You know, we were so high on Anthony Richardson coming out of week one. He did not have a good week two. Uh, obviously, Kentucky's defense is tremendous. Uh, it's a huge challenge, but you know, 14 for 35, two interceptions. You know, that's that's why Florida loses the game. And Kentucky just continues to prove that under Mark Stoops, they are a force to be reckoned with in the SEC, probably never going to win the league or anything like that. But they're a pain in the ass to play, and they are able to just out-tough you. And that's it's amazing that that's become their brand, but it's it's working to great effect in, in what they're trying to do with that program. Yeah, it's great to see them rewarded too. I did not think they were going to leap up 10 spots after winning at Florida. So it's cool to see them in the top 10. Kentucky is who they are. Uh, that is just, they are Kentucky. They play football a very specific way. It's a bit of a throwback. Uh, they don't try to be more than just themselves. And that's a testament to Mark Stoops and the program that he's built. So I think Florida was also a really interesting team to watch. I thought they tried to maybe play their, to kind of get into a Kentucky mindset and play a really physical game. I think you're right. If Anthony Richardson is a little bit more consistent or a lot more consistent, this is a game that they clearly could win. So I think there are some positives for Florida. But, I mean, you're still Florida. You're looking at Kentucky. You watch them come into your house um, and really kind of push you around. It's a little bit disheartening, just two games in for Napier. Um, But I think the story, like you said, is Kentucky. This is a really good team, the second-best team in the East, very likely, depending how they do against Tennessee. And, uh, you know, we talked about Nebraska. You want a guy who has a vision, who can build a roster, who can recruit in the Big Ten footprint, um, and like knows what it takes to develop a program from the bottom up. Mark Stoops obviously fits that bill to, to the letter. All right. Number 11 is Arkansas. They're up six spots, 12 NC State. 13 is Miami. They've got a big game coming up this weekend against Texas A&M, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, BYU up to number 14 from number 25 after they beat Baylor in double overtime. Um you know, I, I don't want to overreact too much about that game for, for either side. I, I tried to watch as much as I could. I, I will admit uh, it was a little bit of a struggle for me to stay awake as we got to the end of that game. You know, I think Baylor just offensively just couldn't get anything going. And, you know, that was a disappointment. But but BYU's a really tough out at home. And, you know, as you, as you look at, at their schedule and what they've got coming up, They've got Oregon on the road this weekend. You know, if they're able to to get by that, if they're able to somehow win in Eugene, I mean, things really kind of open up because you know they they play Notre Dame and Notre Dame looks down. They they get Arkansas at home. I mean, this is shaping up to be a really interesting BYU season. But they they have to beat Oregon this weekend. Yeah, what I had heard, what I'd heard about BYU in like August, July, is that they really thought their defense was going to be spectacular, um, and it has been. And they were really good against Baylor. I mean, Baylor could yeah. not run the ball. They tried a million times. Uh, they could not run it. Uh, they got nothing really going through the air. So just really a spectacular performance overall. This game was sloppy at the end, and I don't want that to like overshadow the quality of the game itself. I think these are two both both pretty good football teams. Um, and uh, Baylor's not a playoff team, but this is definitely a team that could win the Big 12. So um, BYU, yeah, they beat Oregon. It's not really like downhill from there, but it's a 10-win team if they beat Oregon. There's like you got to really you got to really do something bad to not win 10 games if you're if you're three and zero with with these two wins the last two weeks. Well, and they're trying to make a statement that they're ready to go into the Big 12 next year, and I think that was something that they did in in this matchup is to say, all right, you know, hey, buckle up because you're going to be you're going to be playing us every year from now on. Yeah. And, and that uh, was, it was a bad, and it's not a bad environment. It was a, it was a rough environment for Baylor. So I think if anything, I mean, if nothing else, uh, a big 12 team or big 12 teams watching the game realize that man, going to BYU, especially in a primetime game is, is not, is a really, really tough road environment. Baylor found that out. All right. Number 15 is Utah. They played Southern Utah. No big deal for them. Uh, Tennessee up to number 16. They were out of the poll last week after winning in overtime at Pitt, 34-27. Uh, exciting game. I don't think either of us are surprised by by that outcome. Uh, we both picked Tennessee, even though Pitt came into the game as, as the higher-ranked team. 
Uh, number 17, Ole Miss. Number 18, Wake Forest. They took care of Vandy. Number 19 is Baylor, as we mentioned. Let's let's spend a second on Texas. You know, the, the game they played against Alabama, I think, shows a lot of progress for them defensively. How much of it is Gary Patterson's influence? We know he is now on staff there as, as some type of analyst or, you know, whatever title it is. He's obviously influencing things on defense. Um, they just look like they, they are a tougher team than last year. Now, we've seen Texas before get up for big games and then kind of not get up for your regular Big 12 games. Do you think we can believe what we saw from Texas as a long-term trend? Absolutely not. <laughs> you don't trust it. Absolutely not. Like, why are, why, why are we doing that off of one game? Uh, absolutely not. Yeah, but look, like, you got to be an idiot not to recognize the positive signs, right? And that's like, they played a tough physical game against Alabama. They should have won. Absolutely should have won. Um, and there's a lot to take away from that, especially when you were 20-point underdogs at home. So, like, I'm not going to overlook the positives, but that's not to say that they're going to go out and, like, destroy Texas and – I'm sorry, Texas Tech and UTSA. Like, we don't even know enough to say that, let alone beat Kansas State, beat Baylor, and all that stuff. So, let's just slow it down and recognize that they were so bad last year that this just simply recognizes or, or uh, represents progress. Yeah. It's just progress. They still lost the game. When you really get down to it, the purpose that you play is not for uh, oranges at halftime or anything like that. You play because you want to be the team that scores more points at the end. They didn't do that, so that's a failure. But still, some positives. I mean, not going to be stupid. They definitely had some positives. I felt you slipping into a Herm Edwardsism there. Yeah, I had to back off it. I had to really back off that. That's a real 2007 joke. I got I got to update. My jokes now are only about Brian Kelly's accent. I don't joke about Herm Edwards' sound bites anymore. All right, number 21, Florida. Number 22, A&M. Let's just hold off on them for one second. 23, mm-hmm. Penn State. 24, Oregon. 25, Pittsburgh. First teams out of the poll, Florida State, Cincinnati, Appalachian State, Air Force, Kansas State, Wisconsin. All right, let's talk Texas A&M. Why is I'm that actually State surprised. out of the poll? Why, well, are they, why are they out? And A and M. I think it's a very fair question to say why is Texas A and M ranked above Appalachian State when okay. Appalachian State went into College Station one seventeen to fourteen. Yeah. Have you um, seen this video that people are talking about? Yes, I have not I've, been, I've what, seen what's it. going on with it? Am I are we allowed to talk about it? Is it is it uh, inappropriate for for young audiences? I don't. Are, I honestly have no the idea. Yell, the yeah the Aggie yell. Yeah, and how come it's like what to ex- explain this to me or to anyone else? I really, truly don't understand it. I spent well, about thirty minutes last night trying to figure it out. I mean, as best as I can tell, I, I think this is sort of like a pep rally type thing. Okay. That that is done on on campus, and it's people trying to like tell jokes and be funny by making fun of you know whatever stereotype is associated with the other school, um, which is extremely unself-aware of Texas A&M given that <laughs> like the stereotypes of Texas A&M are what they are. Right. Um, but yeah, no, that was, that's, that's pretty embarrassing, pretty embarrassing, but it's, it's, you know, it's just this, college kids trying to have fun. But what's more embarrassing is that you lost to App State at home. And that's not because App State's not a good football team. We know that they're like seriously, seriously good, a good team and a good program. But this is such egg in the face for Jimbo Fisher and for this program and for his offense that, uh, like, I don't even know what they have to do from here to make people forget this, certainly even within their own fan base. This is an ugly, stinky, odor-filled loss that's going to track and trail this team for months. I really believe that. They had 97 passing yards, 89 rushing yards against Appalachian State, which, again, good team, but not a defensive juggernaut. The week they gave before, sixty three. Yeah, the week before NC they gave State. up sixty three points against to, to North Carolina. So there's a major problem in College Station right now, and I don't know how they're going to get out of it or figure this out because it's it's not a talent issue. I think some of it, a lot of it, is the fact that their offense at Texas A and M is stuck in the past 
Jimbo Fisher has always had the reputation of being a coach whose whole approach, his playbook, it's 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 thick, it's heavy, it's complicated, it's not easy to to it's not user friendly. It takes a a really advanced level quarterback thinker to run, and he had the luxury at Florida State of of a, having a few of those guys come through his system. But the reality is, since Jameis Winston. And that was a long time ago now. Jameis Winston was a long time ago. Yep. He has not recruited and developed a, a good quarterback, not even one. You know, Kellen Mond had a nice year as a senior, but Kellen Mond was was already on campus there. He was a guy that, that, that Jimbo inherited. Jimbo is in his fifth year as the head coach of Texas A&M. By the time you're in year five, your program is what it is for, for the right. most part. You, there's not a lot of new new ground to plow here. There's not any more blaming the previous guy. By now, all the issues of culture and work ethic and whatever else should have been fixed, and yet you're still kind of looking like an eight and fourteen, which is what they were under Kevin Sumlin and why they got rid of Kevin Sumlin and why they paid Jimbo. First, it was seventy five million over ten years. Now it's like ninety million over the next ten. And they're not any better. They're just not better. Uh, they may be recruiting more five stars, but they're not a better football team. And, you know, I was told that when he got this previous extension from AM, the one last year, he didn't even ask for it. This was a proactive move by AM. You know, maybe they were afraid that LSU was going to fire Ed Orgeron and, and LSU was going to come open at the end of that year. But like this wasn't necessarily Jimbo going to AM and holding them hostage for, for a new tenure contract. This was AM, you know, laying down at his feet and groveling and saying, please don't go anywhere, even though you're not. We're just going to give you another $90 million. So, so to me, this is as much of an administrative failure as it is a coaching failure. And now I, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know how you you get out of this because it just doesn't look like there's any progress being made that would merit him being the coach there for another decade no definitely not and I think these are three numbers that that help you understand just how distraught AM and their fan base should be about the state of the offense this is an offense driven sport you win national championships with offense 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 they played App State held the ball for about 18 minutes ran 38 plays committed two turnovers had nine first downs, averaged less than five yards per play. Against App State, at home, that is such an indictment of this offense, the direction of the offense, just the general theory of the offense, just the idea of what this offense wants to be is so busted, so broken, and so beyond repair. Um, great question of him yesterday, I thought, are you going to give up control of the offense? It's, I think it's about time. And it might require that he go outside and bring someone in to reboot things. But you're right. Like, you're not going to maintain this track and stay on this path for another two years, let alone 10 years. There needs to be something shaken up at a and it's, it's just simply not good enough for what they're paying him and what the expectations are for this team and have been the last three years. Yeah, he had one good year at A&M, which was the COVID year. 2020, they, they had a nice season. They got very close to making the playoff. They didn't quite get there. That was a good year. But but otherwise, you know, that was the outlier. For every other season he's been there, and frankly, every other year going back to 2014 in his coaching career. Now, they've got Miami this weekend. Is that a win or a loss for A&M? That's a win. Okay. Then they have Arkansas and Dallas. It's a loss. All right. Then they got to go to Mississippi State. Absolutely could be a loss, right? Absolutely could be. could be a loss. Absolutely. And then what happens next is going to be a loss. They go I, to I, Alabama. 100%. I will uh, I'll bet uh, – here's how much money I have in my wallet. What do you think I have in my wallet? You, you've, you've known $27. me for a while. Much, $27. dollars I got a five. I got a one and a two, three. I have $9. I bet you okay. $9. $9 Alabama wins at Texas A&M against Texas A&M. Um, All right. So then they have then they have to go to South Carolina. Probably a win. Probably, yeah. They host Ole Miss. Toss up. Yeah. They host Florida. <laughs> Toss up. Right. 
They they got to go to Auburn. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. And then they have UMass at home. That's a win. LSU at home, probably a win. I mean, but we're looking at, you know, four to five losses for this hey, Texas hear me A&M out. team. What if Texas A&M is just an eight-win program? This That's is what they've they been. Are. That's what they've been. That's who they are. I saw a great stat, and I didn't even want to look it up. It probably is true, even though everyone claims this, that, and the other, that Queen Elizabeth never witnessed a Texas A&M national championship. That breaks my heart. This lovely woman lived for 96 years that she never saw A&M win a national championship. And she had waited for so long for this to happen. Um, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to the queen. Okay. Also, I'm sorry for that. It's just, it's not, it's a, it's a fact. She didn't witness one, but. Uh, I'm sure she was distraught anyway. about that too. Um. Yeah, not, not good at, at Texas A&M, and it's definitely something we're going to have to follow as the season goes along. All right, Notre Dame. we got to talk about Notre Dame. They're out of the poll, deservedly so. They lose at home to Marshall. Marcus Freeman is 0-3 as a head coach. And my goodness, things have gone from this guy is the greatest ingenue coach we've ever seen right? to, oh, my God, what did we just do? I'm not going to necessarily like throw the whole thing to the side of the road right now, but Brian Kelly didn't lose games like this. Oh, contraire. He just didn't lose them in a row. He, he, he would lose. I remember the South Florida games. Those are in, etched in my memory. Um, this just, it is three games, but let's just think about what these three games, what, what happened here. In his first game, Notre Dame blew a 21-point lead in the Fiesta Bowl. That hurts a little bit. Yeah. In his in his second game, um, they played reasonably well against Ohio State. May have had a chance to win. Credit to them for hanging close. Third game, they lose to Marshall at home. This is as ugly. It is the ugliest, and this is not a, an indictment of him as a person. It's just a fact. This is the ugliest start for a head coach in the history of Notre Dame football. It's a fact. So let me pose this to you because it's something I think about a lot when you're looking at coaching hires and the philosophy behind why schools feel like a certain guy is the right fit at a particular time. Obviously, there were a lot of hurt feelings and raw emotions when Brian Kelly ditched them to go to LSU. They have Marcus Freeman on staff, and the philosophy is, all right, we're going to be younger and cooler and hipper, and he's going to get us in recruiting-wise to places we've never been before, and we're going to crank this thing up on the recruiting end of it. And he's done all that, right? Clearly, based on on who they've got committed and who's interested in Notre Dame and the level of player that they're on the board with, it, he has accomplished that. But whenever you hire somebody who is maybe – you know, kind of closer to age of the players and maybe looks like the players. And I I mean, from a youthful standpoint, I mean, Marcus Freeman is a very young looking dude, right? I mean, he looks like he could still get out there and play. Very Um, handsome. Do you have sort of the same respect factor and fear factor from the players that you would with a Brian Kelly? And, you know, I think this is something that, that can afflict a lot of, really young coaches is they just don't, you know, they're, they're viewed more as like a friend than a coach and, you know, as a contemporary than, than an authority figure. And does that lead to, you know, maybe a little bit of a, a a softness, a lack of attention to detail thinking you can, you know, maybe cut corners because you're not, you're not going to get, you know, dressed down like you would with, you know, red-faced, purple-faced Brian Kelly coming out and screaming at you. Again, I'm not saying that I know all of those things for a fact, but it is something that I think about whenever a young coach, really young coach, struggles right out of the gates. Yeah, I think it's a fair question about, like, what what direction his voice would take the program in from the start. A lot of times programs, uh, like, go from uh, – 
type A coach to type B coach or whatever those terms mean. They just, they go in a different direction. We need a reboot. We need a guy who represents the other end of the spectrum from this guy because this, that, and the other. So yeah, I think a question of um, how you motivate a group as defensive coordinator, whether it's through positivity or fear or whatever, how that translates to a bigger room is the issue for every coordinator, every first time hire. How do you speak to a room of guys? How do you get them ready? What do you say on a Sunday to get them ready for Saturday? And what are you doing with that message all week? This was always a hire for uh, like a learn on the job hire, which is strange to say for Notre Dame. It was always a job where we believe in Marcus Freeman and we'll let him learn on the job. But like everyone has an exhaustible amount of goodwill. And I'm, and I'm curious at this point, they're owing to a really bad loss. What happens if they go seven and five, six and six, still sign a good recruiting class, but they go seven and five. What does that do for his tenure? Like, does he ever dig out of that hole? That's my concern if you're Notre Dame if he puts himself into a bit of a hole that is almost impossible to get out of. Yeah. I mean, I think that anytime you hire somebody who's 36 years old to run a program of, of Notre Dame's magnitude, you cannot expect them to just come in and have all the answers right away. You know, and maybe it was a little bit naive to think that he was just going to slide in and they were going to be as quote unquote, well coached as, as they were under Brian Kelly. Um, not that he doesn't bring some some significant attributes to the table, and I think over time, if if he has the space and the adaptability to understand where he's falling short, that that all those things can be fixed, and that you can combine that with the ability to recruit and and have a really good program. But it was very concerning to watch the second half of that game, where Marshall just kind of was the more physical team, and Marshall kind of beat them up a little bit. And there was not a lot of problem solving going on through the course of that game when Notre Dame was trying to do things offensively and just kept in, you know, just kind of running into a brick wall. I I do think, especially, you know, now Tyler Buckner's out with shoulder issues for a while, maybe the whole season, you know, I hate to, to say it, but it could get ugly very, very quickly. You know, you, you can maybe survive one bad season as, as Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame, but it certainly would put you in some peril as you go into year two. Yeah, uh, they're clearly, this is not a New Year's Six team anymore. Like, I don't want to say, hey, just get to a bowl game, but we're kind of close to that conversation. Just get the seven wins or something like that. What I would like to hear from Freeman, not me personally, but just in general, if I was a fan of the program, I'd want to know, like, really clearly, what do you want this offense to be? He's spoken about it throughout the offseason. We want to be this, that, whatever. But I, like, tell me exactly what you want this offense to be. And should he have been allowed, if he wanted the opportunity, to hire his own coordinator and really put his stamp on that side of the ball? Tell me, what do you want it to be? Because as of right now, I don't even know what they are on offense. I know it's only two games, but what are you? Like, what, what do you do? What do you do? So I want to, I want to know, because I think the future of his – the success that he has in the future is is – like with AM, it's all about what they do on offense. Stop thinking about defense. Just offense, offense, offense. Everywhere you go, just offense. All right. Any other topics you want to get off your chest here before we move on to week three's games? Can I just do quick hit? I'm going to say like three or four teams. We'll just do this real quick. Go ahead. Number one, uh, Air Force. Air Force beat the, the, the bejesus out of Colorado. Colorado is not good. There might be the worst power five team in the country, but Air Force is really, really, really good. And uh, a team that will be in your top 25 pretty soon. Uh, Iowa scored a touchdown the traditional way. Unfortunately, they didn't, or they scored seven points the traditional way with a touchdown. That was all they scored. Iowa State beat them 10-7. I, I had forgotten this. That was the first time Matt Campbell has beaten Iowa. So uh, <laughs> kudos to him. And then lastly, in like, to me, the most surprising result of the weekend, or at least the score that came across the bottom, and I was like, what? Washington State 17, Wisconsin 14. That's like the strangest, yeah. strangest result. I don't think it means a lot about either team, but that was wild. Like, that score, to me, it's wild. Did not see that coming. That's it. Wisconsin's in a little bit of a little bit of a rut, you know, and it's it stretches back to last season when I thought they were a little bit disappointing. It's It's – Something to monitor what, what's going on there. As, as Brian Windhorst would say, what, what's going on in Madison? Can you see my hands? I, can't, I have to bring my hands close. He's doing this. this what thing. is going I, it looks on weird. in Madison? Uh, I want to talk about Liberty also one more thing. They beat UAB. Liberty's 
without Malik Willis, they've been pretty good through two weeks. Hugh Freeze, remember Hugh Freeze? He's your old friend. They're two and zero with a with a really nice win against UAB. There's no doubt that Hugh Freeze knows how to win some football games. All right, week three, not the best. It'll be all right. We'll get through it. I'm sure some interesting stuff will pop up as we go along. I would say my favorite matchup of the weekend is probably BYU-Oregon. I, I definitely am going to be interested to see how, how Oregon looks against a quality team that is not Georgia, and they'll probably look a lot better. Although you think they're yeah. not a top-10 team. Uh, I, I don't. I don't. But um, uh, just to, to reference like what week three is all about, Michigan State Washington is the seven thirty game. Uh, yeah, that's that's two, pretty pretty weak. Two nice nice teams. Michigan State might be pretty good. We don't have any idea yet about them, but that's that's the kind of week it is. Um, that BYU Oregon game to me that you mentioned is the game of the day for the reasons that we talked about before. I think there's big time takeaways for BYU if they win this game, and obviously for the Pac twelve another loss like that is is going to be is going to be pretty pretty bad. So. I'm definitely 100% making my day around that game. That's a 3:30 kick on Fox, so everything that I watched around that game will be just uh, window dressing for that one midday. Well, also at 3:30, you've got Penn State at Auburn, and it's a good non-conference matchup. I'm not sure either program is even close to the peak of their powers, uh, but it'll be a bit of a scene. It'll be an event. It's not like Penn State goes and plays at Auburn ever, so that's a nice kind of non-conference, on-campus matchup to to have. Auburn uh, has not been particularly pretty. They beat San Jose State last weekend 24-16. T.J. Finley played better in the second half of that game. He was not very good in the first half. I don't know what to make of either team. Um, but, you know, this is – we mentioned Auburn is one of the jobs that, that could very well come open. I think we all know the issues there and the dissatisfaction with what happened in year one under Brian Harson. Uh, but, you know, if he can beat Penn State, maybe things turn around a little bit for him there. Yo, yeah, he needs this one a lot. This smells like a 20-16 to 16 game, like a 17-12 game. Somehow we get 12. Um, this is That's what this game feels like. I don't think either of these teams are great, obviously. But uh, we, it's a big win for Harson, but I think it's even bigger for Penn State. Like we've talked about this team for for months and almost years about how they've been muddling towards mediocrity. They lose this game. I think it, it paints a, a bad bad picture about this squad going into Big Ten play. So they they need to have this. I think they do win, Dan, but I, I think it's ugly. I just think this is going to be an ugly, ugly game. All right, uh, Oklahoma, Nebraska, not a matchup that generates the same feelings as maybe you might have had a couple years ago when they announced they were going to start to play again. Uh, it's just it's just not good. I don't think Nebraska's salvageable at this point, even without Scott Frost. I'm not sure how good Oklahoma is. You know, I think there's been some unevenness in their first couple games, even though they've played some pretty pretty weak opposition. Uh, this is a step up for them in in, in that sense. I, I just, even in Lincoln, I, I just can't see them getting emotionally together enough to, to trouble Oklahoma too much. Yeah, I think they'll be better without Frost there, but this is it's not a game that they really can win. Oklahoma has played well defensively under Venables, as expected against two teams that they should have dominated, Utah, UTEP, <coughs> excuse me, and Kent State. So, yeah, they're a bit of a riddle as of right now. But the offense looks how I thought it would look. It looks a lot like what Dylan Gabriel did with Levy at UCF. He's delivering the ball downfield. Eric Gray um, has been really good through two games. So I think Oklahoma's moving in the right direction. But um, it is a step up in talent. Nebraska's not very talented. But, I mean, against Kent State, this is going to be a little bit of a tougher test. 11.5 point spread, Dan. I I think they cover that by a little bit. Maybe it's like a 34-17 game, 34-14. You mentioned Liberty a second ago. They're playing at Wake Forest this weekend. Wake's a 16-and-a-half-point favorite. could be interesting. I think that's a game that at 5 o'clock I'll be keeping half an eye on. Yeah. Uh, Wake got Sam Hartman back last week. 
He was awesome, as expected, against Vanderbilt, 300 yards. I think he had four touchdowns, maybe three, averaged like 12 yards per throw. Um, 16 and a half still feels like a lot. Liberty might be better than that, but Wake should win this game uh, with some room to spare. It'd be interesting to see them get better. I think Wake really could win the Atlantic, but, uh, I, you know, this is a nice little test. It doesn't tell you everything, but they should win this game by, like, you know, two touchdowns. And that'll, that'll show you that they're good enough to win this division, at least. A decent non-conference matchup, Texas Tech going to NC State. Texas Tech got a nice win against Houston last weekend at home. They kind of have Houston's number for some reason. They they play very well against the Cougars and, and got that done in overtime. Uh, this is a, a solid opponent, I think, for, for NC State as, as they get through what they believe is going to be a breakthrough season for them. So uh, to have this game at home is is huge, and they're going to have a nice national TV audience at 7. This is uh, something NC State needs to take advantage of. Yeah, hopefully I don't get caught looking ahead to UConn next week. I know that's tempting. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, I don't think Texas Tech is, like, that good. I don't I don't really know what to make of them. I mean, I know they beat, they beat uh, uh, Houston last week, but Houston, again, difficult to figure out. So I think NC State's definitely going to win this one. Uh, Devin Leary last week, by the way, had six touchdowns. I know they played Charleston Southern, but that tied a school record. So a little bit of a better performance than we saw against ECU in the opener. And then uh, later in the evening games, you have UTSA at Texas. We'll see how Texas bounces back. It, don't know when they're going to get Quinn Ewers back. Um, but, you know, it, it's unfortunate because I thought early in that Alabama game, he looked he looked good, and he was somebody I wanted to track more closely as they played better teams, and UTSA is a, is a pretty decent team. Uh, and then, uh, as we mentioned earlier, Miami at A&M. Boy, it will be carnage on texags.com if uh, Texas A&M does not beat Miami. Carnage. Oh, yeah. I'm going to get a guest account. Do you need a guest account for Texags? I don't, I don't remember anymore. I think they I'm have a make... board that you can, you can just sort of lurk as a – you, know, yeah, you don't have to sign in. Um, I don't think they're going to lose, though. I think they win. Thank you for listening to the College Football Fix. We drop new episodes every Tuesday discussing the latest news and poll results from around college football. Subscribe to the College Football Fix on any app where you listen to podcasts and find more of our content on usatoday.com and the USA Today Sports Plus app. Hope everybody enjoys the rest of their week. For Paul Meyerberg, I'm Dan Walken. We'll be back with you next Tuesday. The College Football Fix Podcast. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.